and This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. What is the future of black America? In fact, is there even such a thing as black America? How does black America differ from America? Is there such a thing as white America or brown America or yellow America? So why do we talk about black America? Is it possible that just in the language that we use, that we are actually fighting against the very thing that we claim to be after, and that is racial unity? Today on Viewpoint, we're going to be taking a very careful and piercing look at the issues surrounding the whole concept of black America. And here's the question. What is the future of black America if there is such a thing? That is, if there is such a thing as black America, what is the future of black America? Why is it we see so much necessity in dividing off the colors as opposed to looking at human beings? Is there such a thing as racism? Are you sure? I thought we were all part of the human race. My reading of the Bible tells us it's only one race, and that's the human race. And we all came from Adam and then ultimately from Noah. And if that be the case, then what's the problem? Is the problem race or is it skin? Or is the problem sin rather than skin? Today on Viewpoint, we're going to be talking about all these things, and I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. Our guest today, William Allen, says, in the 21st century, it's dangerous to ask wrong questions about the state of black America. Indeed, it is. In fact, it's dangerous to ask questions about almost anything today. You can't ask questions about women because the dictionary changes the definition. If we keep changing the definitions and we can't communicate straight concerning a language that we can all agree upon, how in the world will we ever resolve differences between us? And by the way, what is the state of black America today? Is it the the state of uh, all of America? And what's the state of white America? Is there such a thing? You see, all of these things presuppose things that perhaps maybe aren't as real as we want to make them out to be. So why do we use these terms? Maybe that's part of the reason why we need to have a discussion here today. Even the language that we use. Our guest today, William Allen, is uh, the editor of a fascinating book called The State of Black America. And... uh, it's a composition of essays by a variety of leading voices within the black, or some would say African-American community. And, uh, William, it's good to have you on the program. I'm delighted to be with you. This is an opportunity to expand upon things that I think are of urgent meaning and necessity for our country. Well, they are very important, and uh, uh, just so that you know and so that all of our listeners understand, I do have a, a, a little, a small dog in this fight. 
Okay, I don't have a big dog in this fight or a big horse in the race, but I do have a small dog in the fight in that four of my 10 grandchildren are chocolate. In other words, they're black. Congratulations. Four of them. Their father is the blackest man, one of the blackest men I have ever seen. He is so black that when my daughter introduced him in the dark of night at our front porch one evening around midnight, the only way that I understood that he was even there is when he smiled. (laughs) At that time, she said, may we come in? And they proceeded to tell us that they had become engaged. And so my wife and I said, now what? Now what? Us white folk, what? now what are we going to do with our lily white daughter? And she's engaged to now the son of a chief in the Accra tribe in Africa, Ghana, Africa. What are we going to do? And the next day, we were to introduce... We were going to have to make an introduction at our church. I was the leader, one of the leaders in this large, growing church in Southern California. Now what are we going to do? And the Lord gave me an insight to transform the Declaration of Independence and use it as a foundation for introducing this couple. The rest is history. Four grandchildren, they are now ranging from 23 to 30, and they have lived through all their life in blue blood country in Virginia. Go figure. Well, today on Viewpoint, William, now you understand a little bit more of the story and uh, why perhaps the Lord put on my heart back in 2005 that the matter of black America needed to be pleaded not just by a black man, but by a white man. And so that's what I began to do. And uh, it has been on my heart ever since, and so I'm glad that you are joining us now to talk about this subject. What caused you, how did you end up being part of this uh, team uh, to put together this uh, discussion of the state of black America? Well, there are two questions here, Doctor. One is, of course, what caused me to do it, and the second is how I became a part of it. And first, I would say you caused me to do it. You didn't know you were causing me to do it. <laughs> okay. You didn't know that. Right, but I didn't. as you read through that, this book, you will discover that what I describe is the process of absorption in this culture, this greater culture of the United States. Uh-huh. And you just illustrated from your own life what I have described in great detail, historically and statistically, throughout the course of this book. Mm-hmm. A thing that is going largely unperceived. It is hardly possible to touch a family in America anymore that doesn't somewhere contain the story you just told. (laughs) Okay. And and this is critically important because we must ask ourselves, why are we denying the reality that's in front of our eyes? That's why this book doesn't talk about black and white America. Mm -hmm. It talks about black America, the state of black America, only because that's received usage. Uh-huh. Not because it, not because we want people to go on speaking that way. So we very deliberately speak not of blacks and whites, but blacks and non-blacks. Well, you've said in your book that uh, a progress toward equality for American blacks didn't begin in 1965 with the or 1964 with the uh, Civil Rights Act. 
by many measures, blacks were moving toward parity with whites well before the victories of the Civil Rights Revolution. After the Civil Rights Movement, that long-standing trend toward racial equality actually slowed, stopped, and even reversed. I've been trying to say that now for about 20 years, and it seems like it falls on deaf ears. Why? Why? Because the reversal took place not in the lives people are living, but in the language people are using. Hmm. Okay. And therefore, we began, starting in the mid-60s and thereafter, speaking about us as if we were separate people, when every day we were becoming less so. It has become so extreme, Doctor, that today we hear people talk about people of color. Now, I ask you, and I ask every audience this, do you know anybody without color? Well, I'll tell you one thing. If you were to look at me right now, you'd call me a red man. (laughs) We'll be right back after this break, friends, to have a real heart-to-heart conversation with William Allen on the state of black America. Stay tuned. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. It was the Apostle Paul talking to his ministry sidekick, Timothy, and he said in the latter days, perilous times would come. I'll bet he didn't have in mind that in the 21st century, it's increasingly perilous to try to tell the truth about the state of black America. Do you think he did, William? He doubtlessly knew that we would be the people we are without knowing the <laughs> language that we would use. And, and, and because we haven't changed. Human beings haven't changed. Backsliding hasn't changed. Ignoring right. the Word of God hasn't changed. Being punished for our sins hasn't changed. But our era has a unique way to do all of those things. And the most unique way we have to do it is obsessing with race because it becomes a tool of manipulation. Yes, it does. power and politics. So it's being used, uh, those who are claiming that white folk are manipulating the black folk are the very people who are using the race issue to manipulate. There's no doubt about it. And they're doing what they began to do in the aftermath of the Civil War and have continued intensively to do it since. The follow-up version to the book we're now discussing is going to discuss that in an essay I'm contributing called Counter-Reconstruction Theory. Mm. And in a word, what that points to is once we got over the phase of violence in an attempt to stamp out the presence of black people in the country, we turned to trying to manipulate it by constructing a ward relationship, a guardianship. Mm. And what I'm pointing out in the new essay is that the only way to sustain the guardianship of a large part of the population is every day to expand the government's guardianship role over everyone. Which is actually intensified in the black community because uh, they have created a situation in which they want the black community to be totally dependent upon the largesse of government as their surrogate father, i.e. God. 
in this generation. Yes. So what's happened is what goes around comes around, and Pharaoh now rules over black people in America. And therefore, over everybody else increasingly. Exactly. It's not an accident that you are now beginning to multiply the so-called protected groups. There That's you go. The guardians need to con- constantly expand their authority in order to hold on to it. Why is it that one particular party uh, tends to uh, hold the, uh, shall we say, the keys to that guardianship uh, to manipulate, and that's the very party that claims to be have the interests of Black uh, America in their uh, in their hearts. That that party was framed and thin from its beginning, and it has never recovered from it. Mm-hmm. And one of the great one of the great tragedies of history is that the and the aftermath of the Civil War, mm-hmm. there was of course an explosion throughout the previously seceded state of violence to try to repress participation, which. President Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, wonderfully and heroically stamped out, and he pushed forward with the Reconstruction Movement. But by the end of his term, in uh, 1876, even that heroic effort had been overcome, partly because Republicans had grown tired of protecting black folk, and they were eager to reintegrate with the frozen snake, so they took it to their bosom. <laughs> and that was that, that that party that was framed in sin, and it came back into the union, having left. Mm. But the sin still at its heart. Yeah. Well, isn't it, it, isn't it interesting that uh, all of the gains, supposed gains politically and socially, uh, from the civil uh, the civil war? actually were fought against by the very party, political party, that now claims to own black people. That is no doubt the case. Yes, it is true. It's unbelievable. So I have a a question for you. Uh, A white guy asking you, I'd like to know, how is it then that the majority of uh, those in the black community in America are so gullible and cannot see what is happening to them. That story is not the story of what the white leaders, politicians have done, though they certainly fed the fuel that keeps the flame burning. It has to do with leadership from within the black community. Ah, so... chapters in this book details that quite clearly. So in other words, the black pastor is the man in every woman's household. That's to be sure, but more importantly, that the black pastor, more than anyone else, it was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. who paved the way to this victimization and dependence. Even though he began his career in a quite different plane, and speaking most eloquently about the promise of American heritage, about the blank check of the revolution, he ended his career by declaring there's no hope for black people without a complete reform in non-black people, without changing the whole society. And that led to the development of the victimization Mm -hmm. syndrome, which was reinforced by the Democrat Party at every turn, expanding the notion of victimhood and dependency, even so far as to say you mustn't even blame the victims, no matter what they do wrong. If they commit crimes, you must explain it as the legacy of racism. 
if they fail to pursue education, you must explain it as a legacy of racism. You must go on and on, driving like a hammer to a nail through the heads of everyone in the entire society, that this is a separate people distinct from everyone else who can only exist so long as everyone else defers to them and the government administers their care. I have never run across anyone who was willing to speak so plainly and so piercingly concerning these issues. And it seems to me that is from the from the uh, black side of things. And it seems to me that there is no willingness, hardly anywhere, to face truth on these issues. Well, there is a growing chorus of voices, which still are most quiet voices in the larger landscape. Mm-hmm. But but are protesting this, and, and so you can find them in small islands of activity here and there. But of course, the, the real prospects for us, the real future is to enlarge this conversation beyond the confines of the black communities across the country. And I insist there are black communities, not a black community. Uh, that's because of obvious reasons, just as every other people in the country have several communities, so do black people. Right, exactly. But, but the point, of course, is to say that it is so closely tied into our politics that it, we must untie the knot there before we can expect to make the kind of cultural improvements that are so urgently necessary. Absolutely true. So uh, when you talk about politics, you're talking about power, you're talking yeah. about control, and uh, that brings us to a fellow by the name of Kendi that I want to talk with you about in just a moment, but I want to make your book available to our listeners because uh, I think they should be able to tell by now that we're really... Uh, this is truly speaking truth to power now. That's what we're doing. Uh, we're actually willing to involve ourselves in the perilous task of speaking the truth uh, in the hope that somehow uh, it will grab hold of enough people to where we can find uh, a reconciliation of humanity, not a reconciliation of black and right, because I, I believe that our greater problem is we need to be reconciled with truth. Uh, until we're reconciled with truth, there's no way to be reconciled with one another because we keep denying truth. So here's the book, friends, The State of Black America. And uh, as he says, in the 21st century, it is dangerous to ask the wrong questions about the state of black America. It's a $32 hardbound book, and it's yours uh, for just $26 on our website today. $26 on our website, saveus.org. SaveUs.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. If you're writing a check, add $5 for postage and handling, and we'll get it in your hands post-haste. Very, very important, friends. And by the way, uh, what you did not know, William, is that uh, on our website... Uh, saveus.org, we have a whole series of fact sheets. And uh, one of those, which is the one that was uh, prompted back in 2005, as the Holy Spirit spoke to me concerning the importance of dealing with this issue in the black uh, family. Uh, It's called A Portrait of the Black Family, uh, Descent into Destruction, 
And as Dr. Julian Hare, director of the San Francisco Black Think Tank, said in Ebony Magazine in November 2003, he said the black family has crumbled more in the last 30 years than it did in the entire 14 decades since slavery. Now, that speaking truth to power, uh, it sure is contradicting uh, people like uh, Mr. Kendi. Tell us about this fellow, Kendi. Well, of course, we discuss him at some length in the principal chapter opening the book because he's the one who has given greatest currency to what's called critical race theory or the anti-racism campaign. Mm -hmm. And so we've delved into that in detail and explained why it's wrong historically, wrong philosophically, wrong morally, and wrong religiously. Mm -hmm. Because what it does is embed racism in the myth that there's something called systemic racism or what I like to call racism with a capital R. Mm-hmm. and that the whole country is so infected with it, the only cure is, of course, to destroy the thing because it's no longer something that can be removed by surgery. Wait a minute. You're, are you saying that there's no vaccine against this uh, uh, so-called yeah. inherited uh, racism? That's the theory. Exactly. <laughs> no surgery and, and, and no vaccine. So, in other words, you're doomed. You're doomed. And, and so, therefore, you must destroy this order and replace it with a new order. And, of course, in Kennedy's terms, that's the Marxist order. Uh-huh. But one of the things that I argue most strenuously is that there doesn't exist any racism with a capital R. There is, of course, racism with a small r, mm-hmm. as there has been throughout all of human history and will be all over the world. Right. And that's a matter of individuals, and that's to be dealt with with ordinary laws and with ordinary relationships among individuals. The racism with a capital R, that's a great systemic social thing that requires social reform on a large scale, that doesn't exist. And yet that's the myth that's perpetrated that's being taught in our schools under the banner of CRT that has infected our military, our large corporations, our government, federal, state, and local, and every major institution, especially institutions of higher education. Mm. They all have embraced it. Well, here we are... uh in a in a, a season we're supposed to be celebrating the birth of Christ, and yet he was born into a society that itself uh, was involved in racism. You could even call it religious racism, because the uh, Jews in the south of Israel uh, wanted to have nothing whatsoever to do with the Galileans uh, in the north of Israel. They were seen as dogs. And then again, they had nothing to do whatsoever with the Samaritans. In fact, when Jesus uh, talked to the Samaritan woman, she couldn't believe that he was talking to her because they considered them to be dogs, not worthy of talking to. So this is not a new thing, is it? No, so far from new that in my sermon a week ago, I explained the genealogy of Jesus, not through the 14 generations from Perez, but the three women. Tamar, Ruth, and Mary, (laughs) each of whom lived under a ban, and the ban had to be lifted in order for them to engender, ultimately, Jesus Christ. And I described that movement of the thrice-fold lifting of the ban that led to Christ lifting the ultimate ban, which was the sin of death, the death that results from the crime of sin, I should say, put it properly, uh, through his own sacrifice. So, yes, that's what the story is about. The story is about overcoming bans. And and you might say that means overcoming racism and every other human resentment and resistance. Yeah, so this is not a new idea. Uh, there is 
it's not racism, but religious differences and wars over religion and uh, wars over this, wars over that. If if there weren't different colors uh, of people, we'd find other things to war over. Because yeah, that's the nature of the sin nature. It involves pride, doesn't it? Yes, and most spectacularly, it involves lying about who we are. <laughs> as, I, as I expressed it in the new essay in the volume to follow the present volume, there is no such thing as racial equality. Because there is no equality of races, there's the equality of persons. We're all human beings. There you go. Race. Thank you so race. much. We're either created in the image of God or we're not. We either is or we ain't, exactly. right? Precisely. Okay, but here, here's this fella, Kendi. Uh, let's try to distill this very quickly. You said that uh, he's one that's advanced this uh, CRT, critical race theory idea, and driven it into the pop culture, driven it into the corporations, driven it everywhere. And uh, he reinforces th- this inherited race referencing, making it the peculiar tool of anti-racism. In short, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. As we wrapped up the final, the last segment of the program, I was quoting from uh, the book, uh, William Allen's book here, the in short, from Kendi's viewpoint, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination, which means a perpetual and unending war. You thought the war of Russia against Ukraine was unending. Well, this one is unending and is actually celebrated by a political party because it's the only way they can stay in power. Did you hear that? It's the only way that political party can stay in power. They have to keep the black community under subjection and believe that Pharaoh will provide all of their needs in the name of American democracy. All right. By dismissing everyone who degrees with his assumptions as a racist and by giving a certain social and political program all the way to religion, Kendi only deepens the bitter division that threatens to fragment us. He can speak of unity, of justice, and of peace, but he can't show us the way to get there. Ah, well spoken. Why is it that he can't show us the way, William? Well, as we describe it in the book, it is because he fails to... Uh, put its finger on the touchstone of who we are. Mm-hmm. And that touchstone is religion, the transcendent. And so, so, so we explain at some length 
that you need to be able to recover the sense of religion in order to recover the mission of justice. And that's what Kendi is working without. His distortions are directly the result of rejecting religion. We say, how then do we propose to get there? Meaning, getting to meaningful justice, the justice of uh, self-government in a free society. Mm-hmm. We say, there is, of course, the purely psychological and empirical questions posed by some of Kendi's critics. Can human beings live together peacefully without a shared faith? There's a long tradition of Western thought that maintains that we are religious creatures, mm-hmm. never content with a merely animal existence. We demand transcendence. But that's impossible it, for him because he's a Marxist yes. who is yes. anti-religionist. Yes, precisely so. All right. But, but, but we must respond to him with what we are and what our resources are. And his anti-religious sentiment cannot be the thing that will settle the question for us. True. Okay, now... What I'd like to know, for our listeners' uh, sake, you and I are having this conversation, and and you obviously have uh, piercing uh, thoughts concerning it, and I and I really appreciate it. This is the kind of thing that we like to do here on Viewpoint. We don't do arguments; we do uh, real serious uh, reasoning together. And uh, yet, you are the editor of a book where there are many essays. So tell us a little bit about uh, just a thumbnail sketch of these other contributors and uh, why it is that they are speaking into this issue in their perspective positions. Well, this book, of course, is published by the Center for Urban Renewal and Education in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. We call it CURE, uh, an organization which I served in a period of recovery as a chief operating officer. Uh-huh. And in that role, I pulled together this particular mission to address the state of black America through the contributions of the most talented people we could find to speak to the issue. So we set out a call for proposal, a call for papers, Mm -hmm. and we distributed it widely, academically, uh, think tanks, all over the place. And from the submissions we received, I selected those that were most to the point and most qualified to respond to the query that we were posing. Now, it's not that uh, I, I have two essays, and it doesn't mean, therefore, I have slim picking. That means the <laughs> other <laughs> are also really good. Well, that was uh, a matter of power, power, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah certainly. <laughs> 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 oh, 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 let's, let's call it uh, talent. They're calling in the gift. Calling okay. in the gift. <laughs> but, but we have people like Glenn Lowry. Uh, and we have people like uh, uh, Robert Brown, uh, uh, and uh, we, we have the we even have contradictory viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be very clear about that. Yeah, uh, I mean, the people like Ian Rowe, a spectacularly good survey of what it means to encourage agency in black communities, mm-hmm. and then Precious Hall and Daphne Cooper writing in the book, as well as Star Parker, the founding president of Cure. Um, writing on marriage, family, and abortion. So, so we pull it all together, and we get the broad historical overview from Edward Erler and Robert Bland, constitutionally mm-hmm. and politically, and we get out of it a picture that is a steady portrait of how people move through deep and dark times into brighter and brighter futures mm-hmm. until we came into the 1960s when a great shadow overhung that whole process of development. And isn't it interesting 
that since the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, by the way, came about uh, against the will of, uh, that is, the fundamental will of the then President of the United States, a Democrat, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, it was the Republicans that pushed it through. What, yes, to be sure, the politics of the day, they had obviously some Democrats voting for it, as well as people like Edward Dirksen and Howard Baker, but it required those Republicans to make sure it happened. Exactly. And the motivation, though, is what is so cynical. The motivation by Lyndon Baines Johnson was, look, if we can't beat them, join them, so to speak. And yes. we're, we're, we're losing the game, so now let's just uh, addict black America to largesse. Well, it was not an accident that he declared in 1965 that equal opportunity is not enough. It was just a way of saying to black America, you can't do it on your own. Exactly. We've got to take care of you. It was the most cynical, uh, wicked uh, approach. And I don't think people had a clue what was really taking place there. If you want to find out, friends, I urge you to go to our website, saveus.org. We have an entire fact sheet dealing with the political history of uh, of uh, racism and the Democratic Party, you really owe it to yourself. If you want to know the truth, it lays it all out in glaring color. You really need to see it because of the wickedness that has taken place in the na- supposed name of we love you and care for you. Also, I urge you to get a copy of our... Uh, Portrait of the Black Family. It's a fact sheet there on our website, saveus.org. Uh, I tell you, William, uh, I think even you might be blessed uh, by getting a copy of that. <laughs> yes, I intend to certainly visit the well, website. I'll tell you what one pastor told me, a black pastor. He said, Chuck, this fact sheet is the most potent tool that I have ever seen to preach righteousness in the black community. You know, I, I couldn't be more emphatically in agreement, as I explained in the book. If you simply see what happened from the mid-1950s onward, how the black community came to be targeted, mm-hmm. targeted with abortion, yeah, targeted with uh, aid to families with dependent children, chasing fathers out of the home, They're targeted in so many ways that you then will no longer struggle to figure out what happened. Yeah. There, there was a systematic dismantling of the black family. It's not a mystery at all, and it's not complicated. It's very, very simple. Yes. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a very uh, respected Democrat senator back there in the 1960s, uh, talked about, almost prophetically, talked about uh, what he saw was going to happen. And he said... Uh, we're going to end up defining deviancy down, and we're going to destroy the black family. And indeed, what was occurring at that time, which he thought was pretty severe, has now multiplied a thousandfold in our time, so that 70% of all black children approximately are born out of wedlock, which means they have no father in the home. 85% or approximately that are living without both parents in the home. And what do you expect to happen for black young men who have no male guidance like that? Well, they're getting it in our prisons. 
And the most dramatic part of the story is the part that Moynihan didn't foresee, that what was being done to destroy the black family would ultimately destroy every family in the United States. Exactly. Those syndromes, those dynamics you just described, spread well beyond black communities and have now touched every single community in the nation. All of them ex- experienced an explosion about a, a wedlock birth. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and so the, the system itself becomes destructive because it feeds on itself, and you can't contain it on a reservation. That's the reality. All right, see, you and I are having a truly honest conversation. I don't sense any defensiveness in in this conversation at your end. Uh, I don't think I have any at this end. But normally in having a conversation like this uh, with a black brother or sister, they'll always come up with, yes, but. Yes, but. And when you come up with the yes, but, immediately you're saying, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to consider it because I want to look at these other factors here and become a victim. Well, you see, I never have any need to apologize. I tell people stories all the time about the extraordinary accomplishments of black people under the worst conditions. Good for you. I, I described the church in Selma, Alabama, Big Bethel AME Church, which is the site at which the protesters who crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge gathered to strategize. And I once led 45 teachers on a bus tour of, of civil rights memorials, and we went there. And in the sanctuary, as I'm explaining what happened on that critical day and in those events, I stop at the middle of my presentation and I look up. I fall silent, and then I ask the teachers, I said, look up. Look around you. Who do you think built this? And they, of course, pause because it was an interruption. It was a flow of our discourse. Uh But eventually someone comes to the conclusion, well, the people who worship you. I said, right. This was the first decade of the 20th century. Lynchings had reached each numbers in the thousands. Uh, repression was widespread. The people here were not cowering. They were not impotent, afraid, and without agency. They produced this wonderful architecture, this beautiful expression mm-hmm. of their vision. That's who they were. So I never have to apologize because I can always yeah. point to the reality. All right. We'll get back to this right after the break, friends. The State of Black America. Wonderful book. Uh, $26 to put this hardbound book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA. Be blessed. Get the book. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church.
Again, I welcome you back to Viewpoint. Today, we're having an honest and open conversation with uh, a new friend, uh, William Allen, who is the editor of a book called The State of Black America. Uh, again, he says, and the subtitle of the book here, in the 21st century, it's dangerous to ask the wrong questions about the state of black America. And he's right, because to ask the wrong questions is to go against politically correct uh ideas that have been adopted that are not true they're not true they're denial of truth and purposely so so that you can never you can never ever ever discuss the foundational problems that are causing the breakdown of the black family for instance you can't go there because if you say well it's uh, fatherlessness which is true by the way well then they'll say, yes, but you don't understand poverty. Well, how did the poverty get there? Well, they don't want to talk about how the poverty got there because then they got another excuse. You see, there's always an excuse so that we don't have to get down to the brass tacks, the truth of the matter. So let's talk about uh, the the family because uh, the black family was the family. That was... That was black America, the family. Uh, as early, back in the 1950s and so on, the state of uh, black America, uh, in terms of the family, was far more intact than it is today, wasn't it? Oh, there's no doubt about it. Much earlier than that. In the immediate aftermath of slavery, I will relate a fact that most people aren't aware of. In 1860, the census cut 4 million slaves. 30 years later, 1890, that population had become 8 million. It had doubled in the period since the end of slavery. That was an extraordinary development, and most of it represented family formation, Mm -hmm. as well as emerging education. Literacy reached 50% by 1920 already. The progress in black communities was extraordinary, so much so, that it was celebrated by Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells in 1893 mm-hmm. when they were protesting the exclusion from the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition. So, so these were early signs of black people finding a foothold in the promises of America. You know, one of the things, speaking of the promises of America, uh, the individual that comes to my mind is uh, Booker T. Washington. Yes. Uh, there's a guy... Uh, he didn't exactly, uh, he wasn't exactly born on Easy Street, was he? Well, far from it. <laughs> he, he was as much deprived as anyone ever had been. And to get to college, he had to walk 400 miles. And yet, and yet his attitude toward the issues that he and everyone else dealt with was dramatically contrary to uh, Du Bois. Oh, there's no doubt about it, yes, because she believed in indigenous development, uh, and, and the boys believed in top-down development. In other words, and, and, power to crush anyone that yes. disagrees with you. That's right, and, and, the, and the worse than that, that's bad enough, but most of us can survive the threat of power that seeks to crush us because you know, we can evade. We have some sense of agency, but it was worse than that. It was dependence upon power for every good gift that human beings could aspire to. Mm-hmm. That was the insidious part of it. And so, so that what Booker T. Washington did, for example, and of course he had the alliance and help of Julius Rosenwald when they built some 5,000 Rosenwald schools throughout the South. Mm. 
And, and that showed the tremendous progress that was taking place without supervision from outside, despite the fact that there were northern carpetbaggers and others who participated and assisted. It was largely indigenous, and it was Washington who pushed that line of development. He was saying over and over, we can do it. And he vindicated Frederick Douglass' statement when asked, what shall we do for the Negro? And he said, the best thing you can do for the Negro is to let him alone. <laughs> In other words, let go and let God. Yes. Okay, but the government says, no, uh, we want to control we're going to do it for you, and I want to put this in uh, in spiritual terms. What this really is, friends, no matter how much uh, argument is said to the contrary, George Gallup saying that the black community is the most religious in America, which he said about 15 years ago. Uh, but that being said, and if that be true, then why the tremendous shift of trust from God to government. Why that shift? That's the most ungodly shift, and it's exactly the shift that the Bible tells us is going to take place in the end times when the whole world is shifted from God to government. That's the new world order, friends, and it's happening right in America with the black community. And and in all the communities in which churches are led by people who've gone astray. Exactly. Uh, I was outraged when I discovered what happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, which became invaded by critical race theory. Isn't that amazing? So, so this is not just the ordinary people. These are people who come into leadership in churches. Why? Because they've been schooled in universities, in seminaries, in all the places where these seeds of destruction have been planted. And they're now completely uh, corrupting the congregations that they lead. It is outrageous, and it should be enough to bring tears to any reasonable Christian's mind and heart. It should. Absolutely. Uh, so I have a question then. Why is it that the black pastor, by and large, has become the engine of this kind of governmental domination over the black community? I think we can understand that, Chuck, if we just reflect on how important Martin Luther King Jr. was, who established the model. You know, black pastors existed before Martin Luther King Jr., but he changed the pattern. He established the model for their activism in politics, mm. which was okay so far as it went. But when he attached to it the embrace of structural reform as the only possible route to salvation, then he demoted true religion. Yeah. and a true understanding of salvation, and made it dependent upon progress in the kind of salvation to be brought about by government. And black pastors have simply stepped in line because, like all whole black communities during that fraught era, he set a tone that everyone followed. Isn't it interesting, then, that here, as a black pastor, uh, coming in the name of the Lord, he actually... Uh, bought into, uh, in many respects, Marxism and uh, the trust in the power of government uh, to do it for us and shifted the black community away from trusting God to trusting government. That's correct. And, and if you read his letter from a Birmingham jail, you would never expect that of him because there you think, here's a man who understands what conscience is. 
And he knows conscience means that I have a duty to God before I have a duty to civil society. Mm-hmm. God comes first. But he somehow managed to lose that foothold that he had, that toehold, not really a foothold, that toehold that he had originally, and wandered off into distant lands from which the people still are trying to recover. It has been said, I have heard it said to me, what happens in black America in one generation happens in all America in the next. Isn't that what you've been saying in practical terms? That's what this book is about. Uh, And we say it very explicitly. Unless there's a resurgence of black patriotism, there is no hope for America. And that's because all of America is at play, not just black America. Mm -hmm. The state of black America really is the state of America. That's the story this book is telling. Right. And so everyone has a stake in this. Everyone has a stake in getting past the division and rediscovering what it means to be a truly self-governing community with its roots in the rights of conscience first. Mm. This is so critically important. What you did not know... Uh, William, is that many times over the past 10 years, I have made the bold statement that the hope of America rests in the black community. Then you are a part of this mission. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so persuaded of that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, This conversation, it it takes a little bit to bring tears to my eyes because I'm one of those tough, uh, you know, uh, trial lawyer types. I I practiced law as a trial lawyer for 20 years before the Lord spoke to my heart, saying, son, you've been pleading the cause of men men long enough. I want you to plead my cause in the land. And uh, so, you know, that's what's brought me to this point. But then in 2005, when I just felt this tremendous mantle of responsibility to plead the cause of uh, my black brothers and sisters in this country who were being so manipulated, so deceived, and uh, it just seemed to me that uh, what God was really saying was, uh, just as supposedly Israel was the only hope for the world, so black America is the only hope for America. And uh, uh, Israel has fallen down on its uh, job, black America has fallen down on its job, and all of America has fallen down on its job. So if God is concluding all in unrighteousness. So there's someone who will never fall down, and it's our Lord and Savior. As, as much as we fall, we know the promise is still there. Exactly. So, uh, you know, Martin Luther King said, I've been to the top of the mountain and seen the other side. Uh, what's the other side look like? <laughs> it would be nice to get him now to tell us what he saw <laughs> in that moment of, of self-magnification. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I, but I remember that the reason Moses got to go to the top and look over and not enter the promised land was because he was guilty of an indiscretion. Uh, yes. And God didn't bar him from heaven, but he punished him. Well, he did. At the bitter waters of Mara, where he, instead of giving praise and credit to God, he lashed out in his own anger. Mm-hmm. And that's not unlike Martin Luther King Jr. So oh. perhaps he chose that metaphor appropriately. Well, it's very sad. It's very sad. Star Parker, uh, President 
Coalition on Urban Renewal and Education, CURE, said the top three moral crises facing the black family are rooted in sexual immorality. Do you agree? Certainly. It certainly has become the great cord around the necks of the whole society. We're strangling ourselves with uncontrolled lust. I'm almost speechless. There are things that I... I feel prone to say, not sure that I should say in this regard, but this has become a pattern uh, from pulpit to pew. Uh, I remember a few years ago picking up a copy of, I believe it was Ebony Magazine. It was the cover story, and three women were celebrating, right there on the cover, celebrating how they were attempting to seduce their pastor and sitting on the front row and wearing their low-cut dresses and so on. That that had that was really wow. an earmark, wow. and it was being celebrated as as an integral part of what it means to be a Black American. Well, sexual liberation—it couldn't be kept in the refined homes of the well-to-do, non-Black, uh, well-educated Americans. It had to spread too. It's everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. Uh, just most recently, I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, but there is a series of uh, uh, programs on television uh, talking about the unparalleled uh, murder problem coming from the hip-hop movement. Uh, are you familiar with that? I'm not familiar with the programs, but I know I've heard some of these stories in news reports. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing, and what... Uh, what I have heard is that the hip-hop movement uh, never uh, kept itself into the black community, but spread all over America. Oh, yeah. So it, it confirms exactly what you've been saying, uh, William. And I, I just uh, I bless you. I appreciate so much what you're doing, those that are working with you. Thank you for taking the time to join us here on Viewpoint to talk about this from the heart. The state of Very black welcome, America, John. friends... Uh, $26 to put this hardbound book in your hands on our website, saveus.org. Write to us at Save America Ministries. If you're writing a check at $5 for postage and handling, go to the website, saveus.org. Get uh, a copy. Just print out a copy of that portrait of black, uh, a black family. It'll give you enough to pray about for the next 12 months. It really will. God bless. Be a blessing. And let's uh, together... Let's be the people that God has called us to be. It's not black or white. It's the people who are made in the image of God. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.